Good afternoon, this is 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, the dancing trusting octopus. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Howard Weiner, who will be discussing his book, Graphic Discovery. Also, we'll find out how muscle is so strong. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Rocket Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It looks like it's a very busy week these days, huh? Yeah, well, I'm busy at the stone mill, as usual. The stone mill? Well, I lend myself out to slave labor. That's too bad. Well, it's kind of like graduate school, really. <laughs> okay. And a postdoc, even more so. Well, I guess we're all trained for that, huh? Well, you know, one day I hope to actually move up to indentured servant, but... So who do you think is going to be the Times Man of the Year this year? How about Cro-Magnon Man? Not the it's Pope? It's his time. Not the Pope? Uh, can they award it posthumously? That's right, huh? Maybe it was just your feeding tube. Remember that one year? Oh, you know, all I really need is a feeding tube and a diaper. <laughs> and I don't have to do a damn thing. Remember that one year where they, the time span of the year was the computer? I actually don't remember that. Yeah, I think it was like 1983 or 84. And for some reason, Times decided it was the personal computer because it was going to revolutionize everything. Well, you know, the computer is my only friend, really. <laughs> I spend more time with it than I do with people. So I guess we could take wagers on who will be the next Times Man of the Year. And you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com and we'll have a running tally. Yeah. Uh, again, my bet is for Cro-Magnon Man. My bet is probably the Pope. Okay. Or the feeding tube. <laughs> or the diaper. So, is there any real science going on this week? Who do you trust? Uh, well, I can't even trust myself. <laughs> that, that can be something, especially when you backstab yourself. Well, uh, I do it to the front, usually. Well, it's easier to reach that way. <laughs> So it turns out a group of researchers at Caltech have actually asked this question, what is actually involved in trusting and what, what parts of the brain are activated? If you're familiar with someone or something, you eventually trust it, right? Well, I mean, that's certainly borne out through psychological experiments. But of course, they wanted to know what sort of mechanisms in the brain were responsible for it. And it turns out there's a particular nucleus called the caudate nucleus, which is located pretty deep in the middle of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it turns out this nucleus is involved in the trust activity, but also it's involved in sort of normal reward activity mm -hmm. that you find with, for instance, rats in a maze that are rewarded with cheese. Right. So the implication is that the mechanism of trust is built on top of very primitive mechanisms. I guess there must be an evolutionary role that played into this mechanism. Yeah, you know, I guess it's whether or not you could trust a tiger rather than <laughs> a bear or something. <laughs> bear hug. I like them both. They're very fuzzy. Yeah. So as they argue it, it actually has a lot of implications for economic models of how people do transactions. So for example, if you trust somebody, the relative ease of the transaction is much quicker. Okay. So you can go through a transaction, things will be a lot simpler. Right. And this actually changes a lot of economic models because the classical model is that people act in their own self-interest. Right. The prisoner's dilemma, right? The prisoner's dilemma. And in fact, this suggests that people, if they trust one another, will actually mutually collude to So we're going to have world peace then? Uh, we need more trust, though. And love. And love. So it's it's quite fascinating work. And in fact, it might indeed have an evolutionary advantage because if you trust other members of your tribe, for instance, then you'll all work together to hunt down the tiger or bear that you don't trust. Mm -hmm. It's a very fascinating work. It was uh, work done with fMRI data and published in Friday's issue of the journal Science.
So Charles, do you walk on all fours or just use two appendages or other appendages? Well, I do have three legs. Oh, okay. So all fives then. <laughs> so it turns out that octopus can actually move along with just using two of their arms. Well, I've seen where they have at least one arm that's specifically involved for mating. Presumably they're not walking on that one. <laughs> I guess humans do the same thing, huh? I don't know. I'm walking on mine. <laughs> Only um, when I'm excited, though. A group here at UC Berkeley led by Robert Wool has the first evidence of a octopus walking on their twos. Oh, really? Yes, rather than all sixes. Oh, it's bipedal almost. Yeah, and what happens is the other forms sort of wrap around and form like coconut-like form around their body, and they have two of them uh, so not quite jetting along, but... Crawling along? Yeah, crawling, but in a conveyor belt-type fashion. Oh, like treads on a tractor. Right. Well, you know, I'm, these uh, octopi uh, have all kinds of interesting mechanisms. I've seen... Lots of uh, interesting apocryphal stories where they'll climb out of one tank mm -hmm. into another and yeah. uh, steal fish from the other tank and then crawl back to their own. Right. So yeah, they're smart. Smarter than some dogs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or people, even. <laughs> I thought also that the different legs of the octopi, they act independently. They're not actually controlled by some central mechanism. Right. Actually, so this raises an interesting perspective of how to design robots in the future. Mm. Instead of hard robots where, you know, everything's centrally wired, you can have soft appendages which act semi-autonomously from the rest right. of the body and by these automatic mechanisms be able to give full walking ability. Yeah. So uh, there's a very nice video of this, in fact, at the New Center Berkeley at newcenter.berkeley.edu. Oh, check that one out. Frank, what are you going to do when the revolution comes? Stampede like crazy. <laughs> I'm always afraid of being the first one against the wall. Because <laughs> I guess of all the crimes I've committed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what to say about revolution, right? You just end up with a grimy bureaucracy in the end. <laughs> Any form of government, really. <laughs> Even anarchy. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, uh, the revolution that I'm talking about is the dance, dance revolution. Whoa. Can you do it, Charles? I've been amazed by watching some of these people that actually played this dance, dance revolution game. It's amazing. Twisting their bodies in some contorted fashion. It's, huh? it's almost like the Lord of the Dance, if you watch it. Uh-huh. Except better, really. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you get sort of a workout or something, huh? You can, in fact, and it turns out some insurance agencies have thought the same thing. Wow, so, so Nintendo can save your life now. <laughs> well, it's better than the Atkins diet, apparently. So the West Virginia Public Employees Insurance Agency has funded a study to see if playing Dance Dance Revolution can reduce the incidence of obesity in children. And does it? Well, so far, the indications are probably it does. One particular case study says that they lost 10 pounds just by changing their diet and lost another 10 pounds by playing the Dance Dance Revolution. Imagine your parents forcing you to have fun. Well, you know, in which case, I can see kids just complaining not wanting to play the game. I want to do some more homework, mommy. <laughs> but again, this sort of underlies the big issue, they say, is that obesity is, of course, a big issue in the United States, especially among children, so any mechanisms they can get for increasing activity in children are perhaps good. Mm -hmm. In my day, we used to go out and play basketball or something, but <laughs> I, I guess... You didn't dodge balls? I dodged balls, <laughs> which was always a fun game, especially when they're coming right at your head. Oh yeah, that happened to me. I think I lost my hearing for a few minutes. I think I lost my intelligence for a lifetime, as can be told by listening to this show. I can't uh, hear anything. Yeah. It's uh, quite fascinating work, and actually, if people want to read about this, it's work that was funded by the West Virginia Public Employees Insurance Agency, and also studied at West Virginia University. All right, so do you get a little tummy ache every time you drink that arsenic? Well, usually I mix it with a little bit of Kahlua and vodka. I get the white Russian surprise. It's all trains away, huh? Yeah. So it turns out you can also do that by mixing in a little bit of powdered water hyacinth root. It's not in my uh, bar, but I should add it to it. Yeah, apparently in a lot of places, uh, water hyacinth is a weed, and it just clogs the drain, uh -huh. clogs up the waterways. But a recent study showed that if you take the root of this plant, dry it, and then make a powder, it actually is very good at chelating or absorbing arsenic in its 
its derivatives. Uh, is this actually a major problem in water supplies? Uh, yes. In fact, in many third world countries like Bangladesh, where up to 60% of groundwater contains arsenic above WH guideline levels, using this technique seems to substantially reduce it. In fact, if you start off with a solution of 200 micrograms of arsenic per liter and expose it to this route, you'll get down to 10 micrograms per liter, well below the WHO limits. Uh, fascinating. For all those people who have arsenic in their drinking water. You know, I, was, I wonder if it's supposed to be arsenic, but then like the Paris Mangala became arsenic. <laughs> well, you know, if I had my choice, I would rename most uh, toxic chemicals with ass in it somehow. <laughs> Chlorofluorocarbons, they would all be ass of fluorocarbons. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, this is a uh, fascinating stuff. It's in the recent Journal of Environmental Monitoring. All right, handing people their ass. <laughs> and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. Harold Weiner will join us to discuss graphical discovery. So stay tuned. Trash to the garbage around Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, humans are primarily visual creatures, and our understanding of the world is aided by graphic depictions of various phenomena, more so than by narrative textual explanations. In this way, a picture really is worth a thousand words, especially when it comes to conveying the story in complex data. But surprisingly, visual data display is a relatively modern innovation, and as such, creating effective, simple graphic displays still is something of a developing art. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss the visual display of information is Dr. Howard Weiner. Dr. Weiner is Distinguished Research Scientist for the National Board of Medical Examiners and an adjunct professor of statistics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the author of 12 books, including a recent book, Graphic Discovery, A Trout in the Milk and Other Visual Adventures. Dr. Weiner, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. My pleasure. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. I mean, you've written a, a very fascinating and well-illustrated book. Graphs are certainly ubiquitous, but a lot of people don't really pay attention to their design. I wonder if you maybe can tell us the importance, really, of good graphs and their design. Well, graphs really can serve many purposes. The one that seems to be most common is decoration. 
quite often we confuse those purposes, communication of information versus decoration. And so many of the graphs that we see are designed to be beautiful, which is to say to have many colors and many dimensions, but not necessarily to communicate effectively. And so I think that's the biggest problem that we face is that confusion between decoration and communication. I mean, you see the same problem in interface design with computers in that interfaces are quite often worked on with teams and people try to have their part of the interface have the most buttons and be in three dimension and have all sorts of bells and whistles rather than trying to communicate information between two enormously competent information processors that is to say the computer and the, and the human brain and there's this thin interface between it that has to be used effectively the same thing is true with all sorts of graphic communication it's clearly less is more is the answer right right uh, well so actually in your book you talk a lot about these sort of innovations that led to like, the explosions in graphs in our society. You claim it's actually something of a relatively recent innovation. Yes, most of us tend to think that graphs are as old as the wheel or, or fire, that it existed forever with some unknown inventor, when in fact it's, it's a relatively recent innovation, and you can trace it to this 19th century Scot, William Playfair, who has plenty of connections to America. But he, in 1786, he published a book, an economic atlas, and the atlas had no maps in it. It was all graphs. He invented the line graph and bar charts and almost by accident a pie chart hmm. and Venn diagrams. This is over the course of several of his publications. But he was, he was responsible for essentially developing these. Uh, they existed before him in odds and ends, little places, but nobody paid much attention. And what came out of his work was just finished and popular, and then after Playfair, everybody used them. And you sort of make the remark in the book that it went in the opposite direction from most things in the sciences and social sciences, and that it went from describing social science events back into the natural sciences. Yeah, a lot of scientific development went from the physical sciences into the social sciences, look mm -hmm. at calculus. Mm -hmm. But graphics went the other way. It came from the social sciences. It was originally being used for economic variables rather than physical variables, although there were some interesting graphs that occurred a little bit before that to show weather. But, and that was sort of a natural kind of thing in that a thermometer looks like a graph. But yes, most modern graphs have their origins in the social sciences and economics. Uh, this Playfair fellow, he's actually something of an interesting character himself. Yeah, in order to be able to do this, he needed to be something of a rebel, and he was. It was often at a relatively young age, and he was raised by his older brother, who was a very renowned mathematician and physical scientist. But then he was set off on his own when he was about 14 and worked for James Watt. Mm. But he was always interested in trying to make more money, and he had a lot of nefarious schemes, and some of those are described in graphic discovery. But he didn't receive very much attention within England while he was doing this. Mm. But he was very well received in Europe, and he met the King of France, who understood what he did and appreciated it. Playfair was so happy with, with the King's response that he mentioned it in in several of his subsequent books. It certainly is amazing, the innovation that were just brought about almost this one man. Uh, how long did it really take for like, the, sort of the percolation of graphical means into like, scientific discovery? Not very long. Yeah. At that time, in the late 18th century, mm -hmm. there was something called the Republic of Letters. And if you want to call it a country, it, it was a grouping of people who viewed themselves as men of letters, and they all hung out together and went to dinner together. And so, for example, Thomas Jefferson was in France and knew about Playfair's work and brought it back to the United States and was busy graphing things. In fact, Thomas Jefferson's tutor at, at William and Mary was a man by the name of Jonathan Small, who was a friend of Playfair's brother at Edinburgh. And so there were these connections all over. And, uh, Benjamin Franklin, was in, when he was in Paris, was encouraging Priestley and a man by the name of Dubourg, a physician, in their graphic inventions. And, and so they were all hanging out together and exchanging ideas. And so it grew very, very fast. And by the mid-19th century, by 1835 or so, graphs were coming out of England left and right, 
There are some wonderful maps, statistical maps of, of England that were done in the 1830s, where they had a, a map of England showing ignorance in England and Wales, and another one of bastardy of England and Wales. And, and, and my, one of my favorites is a map of, of improvident marriages. And I keep thinking about what that would look like in the modern United States. <laughs> Which states would you shade to have an excess of improvident marriages? <laughs> Correlate with red-blue state shading. Maybe. Cer- yeah, I would bet it would, actually. Yeah. C- certainly ignorance would do that. This is probably a good uh, segue into all those interesting examples that you do give about how graphs are used to really either inform or, in some cases, misinform, like Simpson's Paradox, for instance. Well, trying to talk about Simpson's Paradox usually puts people to sleep, so okay. I, I'm going to bypass that one. <laughs> Instead, I'd like to talk about one of my sort of favorite examples. Okay. In order to display data effectively requires empathy. In particular, you have to empathize with your audience and have a sense of what your audience needs to know and not bother telling them about everything that you know, but rather the things that they need to know. And the best example of this that I was able to find is an absolutely marvelous letter that Princeton University sends, their acceptance letter, which is is very simple. It starts off with, dear whoever, and then in very large letters it says, yes. (laughs) And then, quick sentence, welcome to the class of whatever year you're applied to, and then it's signed by the director of admissions. It has everything in it that the person receiving it wants to know, and nothing extra. Mm. I've often wondered about what the other letter looks like. <laughs> and, you know, is, is there a big no? But the director of admissions at Princeton told me that that wasn't the case. Okay. Uh, he said that when you say yes, you can say it very quickly, but when you say no, it takes a while. Right. I, I do recall seeing that letter reproduced in the book, and it was very striking in terms of its simplicity. And you also related in that chapter as well to redesigning the score reports for the SAT. Yeah, well, the SAT score reports don't really emphasize, because typically when you take the SAT, the main question you have is, how did I do, and is it good enough to get into wherever it is I'm applying? And to be able to get that information from the report requires a lot of pouring over small numbers and then some extra knowledge that isn't included. So I I think some lessons can be learned from the Princeton letter. Hmm. Uh, Do you have any other favorite examples of either good uses of graphs or bad uses of graphs, really? Some of the most wonderful ones are historic depictions, and some of them have become very famous. Edward Tufte at Yale, or he's retired from Yale now, but has been really remarkable at popularizing some truly remarkable graphs. The world's champion is a plot that was made by Charles Joseph Minar in, in 1869. It's a six-dimensional plot showing Napoleon's march into Russia, and, and almost everyone knows about that mm, now. Yeah. That's sort of everybody's favorite. So um, what really goes into making a good graph? What are the essential elements of good graph design? Well, in, in, in any sort of communication, first you have to have something to say, and so you need data. And then you should say it simply and clearly, and then you should stop. And that's true for writing and speaking and, and drawing graphs. You have to have a graph that doesn't have information in it isn't worth making. And you should plot that information as simply as possible. And then after you've plotted it, you should stop. Mm, and take out everything that you don't need, really. Yeah, I, I think Antoine Soubiré uh, said that a designer has has achieved perfection not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. Mm. So I think the trick in, in a good display is getting rid of redundancy. And when you get rid of redundancy, it means that there's more space for more information. Right. And so high information graphs are the kind that are the most rewarding. Right. So how has graph design changed over the years, and what's the direction for the future of graph design? Well, the biggest challenge in graphic design is how do you deal with the display medium, which is usually two-dimensional, whether it's plotting on a piece of 
paper or on a computer screen. And interesting data are almost always more than two-dimensional. And so how do you do that? In the past, there's been lots of clever methods, and I mentioned them in our plot of Napoleon's March as, as one example. There are lots of other ways of doing it. But now, suddenly, we have at our disposal another medium, which is a way of having high interaction between the data and yourself. And so there are going to be other kinds of tools that one can use to convey higher dimensionality. And I don't know how well that's going to work. Right now, a hot area is something called data mining, where you have very complicated data with many, many points, and you sort of muss around with it and find things. And a lot of the methodologies that I've looked at for data mining are not at all helpful. They're full of colors, and they're spinning, and there's lines and things, but it doesn't help you see things. Right. So as a final word, then, regarding the design of graphs, it'd probably be just simplicity, right? Well, have something to say, and then when you've said it, stop. Well, I think those are good words of advice, but I think it's a good place to stop. Dr. Weiner, I just want to thank you very much again for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and discussing all the interesting aspects of graph design. Well, thank you very much for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. Howard Weiner discussing graphical discovery. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest, Dr. Howard Weiner, author of Graphic Discovery, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000, again, is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic 
choosing the best graph. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, what would be the best graph to describe them? Dr. Wayne, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Okay. Grokatron 5000, item number one, what is the best graph to describe Michael Jackson? Oh, well, I was thinking of something called a turn-off face. But, oh. uh, you know, I don't know what data you'd want to have in it, you know, whether it's record sales or children molested. <laughs> so it obviously has to be something that's multidimensional because he is. And it seems to me that justice is best served at these times for Michael Jackson to have a blank page. Perhaps no graph would be best for him. Well, okay, let's try number two. Texas Hold'em Poker. It does lend itself to a line chart showing a declining bank balance. <laughs> think perhaps that might be the case for most players of the game. Well, let's try uh, item number three. How about the Pope? Well, that's an interesting one. I've always wondered why God would have him silent for the last week of his life. Obviously, you could use some sort of multivariate display mm -hmm. in which you show various aspects of the papacy mm -hmm. and of the consequences on the Catholic Church. So I think that would be a, a flat line <laughs> at zero. And finally, uh, item number five, George W. Bush. You know, I think all five items it could be thought of as multiple line charts. And so, for example, with George Bush, one of the things we could show is interest rate as a line over his time, uh, unemployment rates going back from 1992 on, perhaps, and national debt balance of trade. You can have a lot of lines that should show a common trend, and I think that might be a useful way of characterizing the characteristics of the current administration. And uh, what direction would they be going? <laughs> well, it depends on the variable. If you, unemployment is going up, uh, interest rates are going up, national debt is going up, yep. they, they all seem to be rising. Not a good trend, I think. Uh, depends who you, who you talk to. <laughs> yes. Some people believe anything. Well, Dr. Wayne, I, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, sticking around to play our game, the Grokatron 5000, and of course, talking about your book, Graphic Discovery, A Trout in the Milk, and Other Visual Adventures. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. All right, well, that was a fascinating discussion with Dr. Wayner. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I'm going to love my graphs from now on. <laughs> I have a whole new perspective on graphs. The bar chart doesn't seem to be sufficient for me anymore. I still like the line at zero that, you know, doesn't go up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a flat line, and eventually, on a long left time scale, survival rate for everybody goes to zero. <laughs> but not if you're around next week on Monday, actually. Yes, there are nice events going on around the area, right? Well, especially ones that are hosted by yours truly here at the uh, Grok Station. Right, and the California Academy of Sciences. That's right. So, at the California Academy of Sciences, they will be having a retrospective on the life of the great physicist Richard Feynman. Yes, and I guess there's a book coming out, The Letters of Richard Feynman? Right. Imagine you can graph that. <laughs> but anyway, show up. It should be interesting. We'll be moderating that. Uh, we'll have some interesting guests. Doug Osherhoff will be there. Nobel Prize winner from no. physics. Yes, indeed. And also a uh, senior scientist from Slack. Right, senior scientist from Slack. And of course, Timothy Ferris, the uh, the famed uh, science writer who is formerly a journalist here at UC Berkeley. Very nice. Yeah. So it's uh, next Monday, right? Next Monday at the California Academy of Sciences. Be there and you can hear about great things about Feynman. Oh, thank you very much there. Oh, that sounds brilliant. That's a Richard Feynman. But you know, last week's question of the week, Giuseppe, he, he stretches the pizza, he stretches the Italian uh, spaghetti. But the question I'd like to ask is, how can I do this? How do my muscles work? Well, Giuseppe, no. He's acting. And it's a biosyn. It's a brilliant. Just like the Mamma Mia's pizza. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Italian man. And now, uh, Dr. Jones, we want to go to find the treasure. We want to find the real gold treasure, not not the gold-plated treasure. Go on an adventure, Dr. Jones. But if you know how to make the gold-plated treasure, email us at gogs at the You won't win anything. Ah, uh, but X marks the spot. X marks the spot. <laughs> 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. Oh, 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 oh